I know key. <laughs> Thank you, singers, for leading us in that song. You know, that song is taken from Psalm 136, called the Great Hallel. And if you read the Gospels, on the night that Jesus betrayed, he had his last supper with his disciples. It says, they sung a hymn, and they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. That was the hymn they sung. That's how you close out the Passover feast, is by singing uh, that song there. And I appreciate the fact that some people put that to music. Beautiful song. Uh, His love endures forever. Well, uh, again, happy Easter. Happy Easter. Uh, I know that there are a lot of plans this afternoon. And uh, a lot of feasts are planned, a lot of family time, and it will be great. I want to just ask you a question about Easter. So what? Now think about that. So what? Raised from the dead, as improbable as that sounds, so what? You know, it's an amazing thing, but a lot of times, uh, don't worry, you do your best trying to get my voice. i got a big mouth, and so I can uh, scream it out here, okay? You guys can hear me in the back, right? Yeah. Good. Okay. Natural amplifone here, all right? There we go. Now we're back. Now i got to speak quietly. You carry a big Bible. Okay, that worked? Yeah. All right. If I stand up here and start grinning incessantly, somebody pull the plug, okay? There's a short system there. <laughs> I wanted to uh, to look at this. You know, it's interesting around Christmas and Easter, uh, magazines, newspapers, they always run their, you know, normal thing. And But this was a good article. This is in the review section. The Wall Street Journal came out yesterday. And uh, the title is The Challenge of Easter. And it's written by a Jesuit priest, Father Martin. And it's really a great article. But here's an excerpt from the article. Why has Easter resisted the commercialism of Christmas? Because whether you're a believer or not, there is no way to ignore the radical claims of the resurrection. Amen. Amen. The resurrection, so what? Well, there's a lot of so what. There's a lot of meaning behind that. I want to tell a story, true story about a man. A young man that was raised to become great. And he applied himself to that in every area. And he applied himself to study. And he became the elite of his class, the valedictorian. He had a reputation. He was a shooting star. This was a man that was going to impact his culture, his society, yes, maybe even his nation. He was the rising meteor. And yet, in all of this excellence, and he demanded excellence in everything he did, there was also a ferocity. You know, it's amazing, when you're striving to be the best you can in any area of life, anything that's perceived as a threat, you become quite ferocious. Mm. And you go after it. And so that's what happened to this man. Everything he'd worked for and built, I want you to think about plans you have for your life. I want you to think about goals you have for your life. I want you to picture, you know, you're going to have fun this afternoon all that, but like, you know, ten years down the road, what is it you want to do? I want to build a house. I want to have this. I want my kids to go this. And those are good and those are great. 
This man had dreams similar. They were just as important to him as your dreams are important to you, as your plans and your goals. And he was accomplishing. But then something happened. And he went from being the top to eventually dying a criminal death. And you think, what happened to all of his plans and his dreams? And as he was alone in that cell, he wrote a letter. And he wrote that letter to a young protege. And he, at this point in his life, he's lost everything. He has no reputation. He has no money. He has nothing. His health has probably failed due to the scarring and other things that have happened to him in the past 30 years. And yet when you read that letter that he wrote, there is no sign of regret. There is no sign of doubt. He says, I fought the good fight. I ran the race and I kept the faith. And now there is a crown of life waiting for me, but not only for me, for all who have longed for his appearing. That man, formerly known as Saul of Tarsus, became the Apostle Paul. He lost it all. He would say in some of his writings, having nothing, <laughs> but possessing everything. He would talk about the fact I've died, but I've been raised to new life. And as Rome condemned him as a criminal, and as his own culture stripped away his reputation, and as he lost every one of his former dreams to become the cream of crop, the valedictorian, all that he obtained, he's dying alone, but he's not alone. Amen. Because something happened. I've shared this before. I studied with a gentleman, went to a... Uh, a school of theology, very intelligent gentleman, good guy. And he was talking, you know, Sheridan, I just, you know, I don't know about just taking the Bible for, you know, what it says. And he was explaining some of the doubts. We're having a great dialogue. So I finally asked him, I said, well then, why do you even use it? Because I know you use it in your ministry. You'll have your, you know, tell students, turn to this path that you'll do. Why do you even bother? He goes, you know what? I cannot account for Saul of Tarsus. I know something happened. Something had to happen because you cannot explain somebody that was going the course, the trajectory of his life, all of a sudden to have a radical reversal. This was not a kind of nuanced, over time, you kind of become aware and enlightened. This guy was on his way. He participated in the murder of Christians. He arrested Christians. He's on the way. He's not even content with doing it here. In his own home, he's traveling to Damascus. I'll seek him out in Damascus. I will hunt these guys down. And something happened on that road. Something that to this day people cannot explain if they have no faith. You see, Easter isn't as commercial as, Christian, as Christmas because, bottom line, the radical claim of the resurrection is too hard to ignore. Mm. If that is true, what are the implications? <laughs> Let's look at one sermon that the Apostle Paul preached. And I want you to sense the implications of what he experienced, the resurrection of Christ, and what each one of us in here 
will experience as we truly accept that as a fact. In Acts 17th chapter, Acts 17. Paul is heading to New York City. That's true. Now, true. you may think, what are you talking about? New York wasn't even found. Yeah, but basically, this is the New York City equivalent. Yes, it is. He is heading into the cultural capital of the world. The Roman Empire was amazing when it came to government. But the Romans stole all of their culture from the Greeks. And so, Paul is going into Athens, the cultural center of the world, of philosophy, of religion, of atheism, of all the arts. And this is where he's going. This man that lost everything, but says he possesses everything because of the resurrection. And so he walks in, and he's noticing all of the different temples and, and statues and idols, you know, there's uh, about 600 years prior to this, or I think it was about that, uh, there was a, a pestilence broke out in Athens. And so what happened is a guy came up with a great idea. Let's let a flock of sheep just go. And then we'll go, and wherever the sheep are near, which statue will sacrifice to that God? And hopefully that will stay the pestilence. That will stop the pestilence. I mean, that was kind of a solution. People, if there's a God, maybe he's one of this, like this, or maybe like Apollo, or maybe like Zeus. Now, the interesting thing about these gods is you couldn't trust them. You couldn't trust Zeus around your wife. And he's supposed to be the king of the gods, you know? I mean, it's like, you're talking about, you know, they would lie, they would steal, they would connive, they would do all sorts of things. And so, this was kind of religion, but you didn't have to believe in them, you could believe in something else. And so notice what happens here when Paul comes into Athens. He goes to the Areopagus, the ruling council. And he's brought before him and it says in verse 22, Acts 17. Then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. Staten Island. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice 
by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Notice that last verse. He has given proof of this to all men. Why? How? By raising him from the dead. Everything Paul talked about, everything preached about was pure speculation until that last point. That last point means, here's the implication. Everything I just told you is true. You know why? Where's Zeus? Did he die and come back from the dead? Where's some of your prophets? Where's some of your philosophers? We could go, you know, Socrates, the great philosopher of all. Where is he? Dead. Did he come back? No. So Paul's saying, everything I'm saying here, God gave proof by raising from the dead. And Paul's not just entering into nice philosophical speculation. He's talking about his own life. Why in the world, Paul, would you give up everything? See, that's coming from a worldly point of view. Paul was thinking, look, I've got everything now. Everything I was created for. It's the truth that I've experienced. It's a risen Christ. But Athenians, I want you guys to know, everything I said is proved by the fact God raised him from the dead. What you got? Where is your Socrates? Where is your Plato? Where are the great, you know, uh, Greeks of the past? They're dead. Something happened. Three implications I want you to just consider in this message here. Number one, the resurrection is true. Then consider what he said about the God. Your whole understanding of God changes if it's true what Paul was saying. And if Jesus was raised from the dead, then that's the truth. God, one God, is the creator of all things and creator of you and me, all mankind. And he's not only the creator, he's the sustainer. In him, we live, we move, we have our very being. Existence is contingent upon God. That is a view of God. Not some stone, not some little golden idol, not something you can put in a cupboard, shut the cupboard, and go on your way. You know one thing about distractions? God's given us a free will. But with that free will, we can either pursue and consider who is the God, or we can stay distracted. You know, the interesting thing about distractions, it can be pleasures, it can be pursuits, it can be everything. It's like a drug, isn't it? That's right. Have you ever tried to reason with someone under the influence of drugs? No, it doesn't go that well, does it? You're using perfect English or whatever language you speak here. You are conjugating the verbs just right, the direct object. I mean, it's clear communication. And they're looking at they don't have the foggiest idea what you're talking about. And then they talk to you, and they think they're making sense. <laughs> and many of us have been down there. I shared about my past. I almost got into a fist fight with some of my best friends because I was under the influence, and they were wrong. I can drive 90 miles an hour down the interstate drunk out of my mind. What's their problem? Just because they're in the car. What's their problem? <laughs> Bunch of little girls. What's going on with them, man? You know? They pulled me, and I was ready to fight because I tell you what, I knew what I was doing. And man, if I'd taken a lie detector test, 
I would have come out as sincere and as thinking I was just as right. That's what distraction is. It's a drug. What is your drug? And so, because of that, God doesn't end up as the God. He ends up almost like an idol. Oh, we don't have the little idols here, but we can dismiss them. Put them in our closet, not deal with them, not think about them. And Paul says, you know what? The God is not dealt with that way. The God, you cannot do that. You cannot confine Him. You cannot consign Him. You cannot condemn Him. He is the God from whom all existence comes. Time cannot hold Him. He is outside of time. I don't refer to God in the past. I don't refer to Him in the future. I refer to Him always in the present. Because the future is present to Him. The past is present to Him. He always is. In fact, the proper name Yahweh, the root of the Hebrew word, is to be. It means I am. Oh, when were, were you I am? I am in the past. Oh, but that's the present. You're right. I am in the future. What are you talking about? Time has nothing to do. Cannot control me. He is the creator. He created us. He created marriage. He created friendship. He created values. He created priorities. He created purpose. He created meaning. He created beauty. It all comes from Him. And that's what Paul is saying here to these Athenians that are, you know, all the distractions, everything going on. Paul says, this is the true God. And God proved that by raising Jesus from the dead. So that's true. What will that do to a person's life? It creates a lot of serious, serious understanding, doesn't it? God no longer can be dismissed. I can no longer say, well, I just, you know, this is why my life is going this way and that. You know what? Let me go back to the Creator. Let me find out who I ought to be. Let me listen to what He says about my life. Let me understand His perspective. Why is it that Saul became Paul and you couldn't stop him? Why is it that he would talk about the love of Christ compels us? He would talk about the peace of Christ. He would talk, and he talked about all this while he was getting the trash beat out of him. Why? He believed he won. He believed he came back to what he was created for. Everything's good. Others may not believe that. I'm okay. And you and I are here 2,000 years later reading letters written by a guy that died a criminal who followed another one who was executed as a criminal. But that one was raised from the dead. Wild, isn't it? The God. That's the implication. Second implication is the purpose of our life. What is the purpose? Well, to get a job, have family, do this. Those are good things. Those serve purposes. Absolutely. But what is the purpose? Paul said that this God, the true God, the only God, Athenians and Staten Islanders, that you are alive today, that you are, are the product of the... He had you, I should say, you were born in the exact times and places. Why? Best time for you to reach out to Him. Best time for you to seek Him. Best time... In a fallen world where sin is reigning, God's given this opportunity. You are the right place. Why? That you would seek Him. 
You would reach out to him and you would find him because he is not far away. That is the purpose of life. The purpose is to seek God, to be with God. You see, when we sinned, we separated ourselves. The whole world did. God is redeeming. He's calling us back. He's going to renew the heavens and the earth one day. In the meantime, he's giving people all the opportunities to come back. He's giving you your freedom of choice. He's giving me the freedom of choice. Now, all that doesn't mean a thing unless Jesus rose from the dead. Then everything Paul's talking about is absolutely true. Then that's the implication. And the purpose of my life needs to be, God, who do you want me to be? God, I want to be with you. It's amazing how many times we can get lost in I ought to do this, I ought to do that. How many oughts are holding you back from coming back to the life you were created to live? The Creator. How many oughts? Well, I ought to do that, I ought to do that. No more oughts. Today, what will be different? Today, what will you turn to? Today, who will you ask to help you? Today! Because that's all we have. You know, I uh, there are times I've frustrated my own self. I don't need other people to frustrate me. I can do that all by myself. And I do a really good job, okay? I guarantee you, I ought to get a graduate degree in it. But there are times where I'll be thinking about, you know, what's going to happen down in the future and all that. And that's good. You need to plan like that. But, you know, if you're always thinking about all the stuff that could happen, might happen, whatever, guess what happens to today? Today's gone. And you end up paralyzed because you're not doing something today. You're not saying, okay, yes, I would like for things to be this way. I would like for my life. That's great. Okay, there's my point on the horizon. Meanwhile, right now is where I'm living. I've got today. I don't have tomorrow. I've got today. God has any time. Sheridan doesn't. I've got today. Today, what will I do? Jesus rose from the dead. That's the purpose of my life. What Paul said is true. That's the implication. Today, are you coming back to that purpose? To be with God. Well, I've got a lot going on my plate. Let me just ask you, are you getting high? I'm not just talking about on drugs. Are you getting high on distractions? Are you distracted? Is it keeping you from coming back? And then the third implication is the man. What we think about the man. Now, who's the man? Jesus. The last verse there. God has pointed, he will judge the world with justice by this man, and he, he proved it by raising him from the dead. <laughs> Jesus is the man he's talking about. He is the perfect man. He is the man that shows us how we can truly live the life God wants us to live, even though the world can be adversarial. Even though it's hard and challenging. See, God didn't stay far. You know, Olympus, the Olympic gods, they'd be on Olympus and everyone trying to work it out. Every once in a while they'd intervene and do something, but it was usually some bad purposes. Alright? God, this true God, is not staying apart from people going, what is their problem? I created them for better. What in the world is going on? He knows what's going on. We sin. And as a consequence, there's slavery that comes. 
And so all of a sudden, we're doing anything that our flesh wants to do. The desires, the appetites, we can't even control that. The anger, the pride, the jealousy. It's like, oh my goodness. And we're just kind of being led along. And so we think, let me withdraw. Let me not bond with people, because that way I won't get hurt. But then we end up isolated. And I appreciate so much what Jennifer was sharing about with that. So true, isn't it? We can be lonely in a crowd. Because, man, I've been hurt too many times before. I'm not going to let it happen again. We live vulnerable lives. Read the letters of Saul of Tarsus who became Paul. He was vulnerable enough, but he was courageous enough. Because he knew he got hurt, people rejected him, said things. And yet, no regrets. No regrets. You know why? God was with him. This resurrected Christ was true. God didn't stand far back. God became man, the man, and showed Sheridan Wright how to live a life he was created to live in a world that fights against him. And he said two simple words. He said, follow me. But there's my lifetime in those two simple words. That's what I follow him. How ought I do? Let me do what's being said here. It's all about action and taking action. It's not about sitting around, but follow me. So what does that mean on a daily basis? You know, I've got a lot of fears. And certainly responding to God and living for God was one of the greatest fears of my life. But you know what? God knew that. And even more so, the man, Jesus, experienced that fear. What is it like to do that? What's it like? He understands the fear of what people will do. He understands the fear of, can I continue? He understands the fear of what people will think. He understands the fear of suffering. You know why? Because he experienced every single one. And that's why God will judge the world with justice according to him. See, with God the Father, I could say, you don't know what it's like. You can sit on high and say, do this, do that. Yeah, great. Yeah, you ought to be down here. Guess what? He came down here. And he came down here so that Sheridan would have everything he needs to live the life he was created to live. And he not only came down there, he lives right now. The man lives right now at the right hand of God, always interceding for me. So that when, oh, I messed up, I'm sorry, there's forgiveness. So what do I do? I get up and keep following. Oh, I'm not who I should be. Okay, repent. So get up and start following. Oh, I shouldn't get up and start following. He stacked the deck for us. He was raised from the dead. He lives for us right now. That is the man there. And being raised from the dead means that he is the one. I don't know what fears you have. And we think, I wish God would make it easy. Really, you know, what makes it easy is our own, uh, makes it difficult is our own heart, isn't it? We just didn't, weren't so distracted all the time, kind of on our distraction drugs and worried about what we're going to give up or lose. Paul understood that. He could relate to it, but he was thinking the whole time, I lost it all, but I've gained everything. And they couldn't stop it. You know, I taught my kids how to swim by scaring them. 
Now, here's what I mean by that. Don't you call any social services on me. They're, they're old enough now. They can call their own law, lawyer. No, but, uh, but seriously, I knew this. You know, we're going to teach them how to swim, but the biggest thing is to teach them not to be afraid of the water. Because once they can overcome the fear of the water, they're free to learn. So many people are afraid of, oh, what's going to happen? How am I going to get... If God is God, raised from the dead, you know what? He can take care of any promise. All right? If that's true. But I would sit there, and so I would tell my children, I would say, uh, they'd be on the side of the pool, and I would, you know, be in the pool, and I'd say, come to Dad. You know, they'd touch my hand, and they'd come to me, and that's great. I'd put them back on the wall, and I'd step back a little. Come to Dad. They kind of lean and boom, grab my hand and then do that. It was cool. We did that a bunch of times. (laughs) Then I said, okay, I put my arms under the water where they didn't have the outstretched hands and I backed up. I said, come to Dad. They're looking at this thinking, (laughs) all I see is death, right? I see death. (laughs) I love death. Dad's wonderful, right? And here's the side of the pool. This is great. This is home base. But between home base and dad is death. There's just water. What's going to happen? See, they didn't know I was right there the whole time. I could always sit there and come on. But guess what? I'm not going to do that for the rest of their life. They'd always be afraid of the water. I need to teach them. You know what? When dad's around, ah, there ain't no water going to hurt you. Jump. Jump. I'm not going to expect of you something that I will not help you attain. The man that God sent into the world, the man that he became, showed us that. We can trust him. We can let go of our distractions. We can detox ourselves and focus on the purpose which brings us to the true and only God. If he was raising the dead, then those are the implications. God is the God that Paul described. Personal, defined, unbounded. Purpose in life is about you connecting with Him and living for Him. Because in Him you have, you live, you move, you have your very being. And thirdly, you follow the man, Jesus Christ. He is your pattern for how to live. He is the one every day of your life. How do I deal with the situation? Let me pray. What would Jesus do? Is there anything I can study? Let me ask brothers, sisters, help me out. Because I know this is the life I was created to live. But there's one more implication. I'd like the singers to come up. They're going to be taking their places. They will... uh, After I finish, Raymond's going to lead us in a closing prayer. And we will sing one more song that will close the service. But let me look at a fourth implication here. And I want you to go back to Acts 17. After Paul had said that he'd given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Look at verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, 
a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. What's the fourth implication? Is just like this article says. It's too... Let me make sure I quote what exactly I said it. There is no way to ignore the radical claim of the resurrection. You can't ignore it. If that was true, who ought you to be? It is such a radical claim. A lot of people are born. It's a little easier to commercialize Christmas, isn't it? But how many are resurrected? And the implications are, what is your response? That's the fourth implication. It demands a response. You want to get more high on distractions? You want to try and avoid, try and put God into a cupboard? He won't ever be there. Or are you going to say, you know what? I'm going to get serious. I'm going to find out if this is indeed true. If he was raised from the dead, then wow, there's a lot I need to consider. But I have today, and today I'm going to make a change. If you're visiting with us, you've never studied about this, or you're just even curious, please talk to our members here. We'd be more than happy to help you out with that. Uh, our midweek service is held at the Temple on Forest Avenue, right there at the intersection of Forest and, and Bard. Even if you want to come by and pray with somebody. Uh, Hart. I'm sorry, Bard's several over. I'm still learning Staten Island. Hart. Thank you. That's probably a more appropriate word, too, right? Having the heart. So the heart and force, please come and uh, just stop by. Get to know some of the people there. Here's the thing. It's good news. Christ was buried. He had died for our sins. But the most glorious news, in fact, he was raised for our lives and for us to live forever. What is your response? Raymond's going to lead us into prayer, and then let's all stand, and we'll close out with one more song, and have a great afternoon, guys.